Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to Credo Catholic. Kevin, I understand that your microphone is sitting on top of a work of Aristotle. Actually, the complete works, volume one. <laughs> so hopefully, hoping that the wisdom just flows upwards through the mic, because it's not going to be coming from this end of the mic. So hopefully it just flows upwards. <laughs> is, that, is that osmosis? What's the term for that? The upward uh, flow of knowledge. Sure. Um, sapiential osmosis. We'll oh, I like that. that. I like that a lot. That's a... Yes. Well, uh, don't steal it. It's going to be my that's the title. thesis or I was going to say the title of your thesis. Perfect. <laughs> right. <laughs> do you have in front of you the newest copy of First Things? I do. Freshly arrived in the mail only maybe two days ago. I thought you might. Um, I, uh, th- there's an article in there by R.R. Reno, who's the editor, and he talks about the merits of the traditional Latin mass, sometimes abbreviated the TLM. Oh, I've not read that yet. Yeah. So uh, I've, I've skimmed it. I need to reread it more closely. But also in our diocese here, there's a move towards ad orientum mass. It's still the really? Novus Ordo, the new form, but there are, there are more, right. more than, there is more than one parish that is adopting the ad orientum on at least a part-time basis, doing a one mass or two masses a week type of deal. And I have to say, I am pretty psyched. Really? Big fan of Adorientum. Why is that? So I think it would take a whole podcast to explain in depth my reasons for favoring Adorientum. But one of the things I like most about it is that instead of giving the impression of mass as simply a communal meal, the orientation of the priest and the people towards the same direction and more specifically towards the direction of the altar the crucifix the tabernacle our our crucified christ uh, an appropriate image on christ the king sunday no less as we're talking um, reminds us that it's it's not just a communal meal although it is that it is also a, an act of worship and it is a a representation of the paschal sacrifice and so just like our hebrew forebears of old we are uh, representing that sacrifice to God, and it's a good reminder of that. So the the priest is in persona Christi, but not in the sense that he is the sacrifice, rather in the sense that he is representing the sacrifice to God, and we're all watching with him as he does that, rather than simply watching him do that. So are these uh, these masses that are at Orientum, are they also uh, in Latin, or are they in the vernacular? Well, in my diocese, there is an FSSP parish that is TLM, so it is in Latin, right. Adorientum. But I mean, that is the Trinity yeah, form, right? Right, so but, that, not... but that is different. These right. Adorientum masses are the Novus Ordo in English, Adorientum. Right, okay. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the things that I found uh, kind of interesting, you know, maybe a month or two ago as I was looking into all these different forms of the mass, was the first time I really realized that the actual official translation or official language even of the novus ordo is in fact latin wow you would yeah you would think that uh it was english right because we exactly. all encounter it in english <laughs> right amazing what do you know um, or at least italian right <laughs> at least italian yeah uh as father anthony sharapa would say god's language right <laughs> <laughs> um okay another question for you when you are uh just you know, for example, when you are a Dominican friar, will you celebrate at Orientum, you think? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> if you need a, if you need oh, a few goodness. weeks to think about it, that's fine. You can get uh, back to me. All right, great. I appreciate uh, that I can get back to you. The freebie. So also changing the topic in uh, this edition of First Things, it, it looks like a pretty you know, action-packed and loaded uh, volume, but uh, great article by Matthew Schmitz, the senior editor in the back page, uh, about the Coptic Christians in Cairo. Uh, title of the uh, article is God's Garbage People. Um, and it's all about uh, the cops who are essentially living as actual like, garbage collectors uh, and, and sorters in Cairo. 
And, you know, they've basically carved out this existence and living kind of marginalized on the edges of society, but uh, surviving um, kind of almost, as it were, by their fingernails, the community surviving there in, in Cairo. And, you know, I found it to be a great reminder that, you know, we, I think, take it for granted a lot of times in, in our country that we are able to practice. And, uh, you know, I, I stand by the idea that it's, it's still very difficult, really, to be Catholic in modern America, uh, just based on the conflict of um, kind of Catholicism with modernism and as it manifests itself in America. But definitely a reminder that there are brother Christians and brother Catholics and sister Catholics living in you know, much more austere conditions. And, and we always need to be praying for the universal church because there are those who are much less fortunate than us and still manage to represent the faith and represent it well. Yeah. You know, I've been to, uh, I've been to Cairo and I've seen garbage city and it really is a remarkable place. It's a, it's an enclave of these Coptic Christians and their livelihood is from collecting other people's garbage, literally, and, and sorting it and, and separating trash from treasure and, and, you know, selling what they can find or, or making use of it themselves. And it's really a remarkable thing. And as you mentioned, it's a good reminder that a, we have it pretty easy here, but B also that these people have found ways to carve out a culture for themselves and not just any culture, but a Christian culture, one that prioritizes mm-hmm. their identity as Christians uh, and their place in this world as Christians. And that's a really remarkable thing because even in the midst of circumstances in which they are literally collecting garbage to make a living. Uh, as in- And that's probably like the easiest part of their existence too, when you think of, uh, especially under the short, albeit short rule of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, where they were actually physically persecuted to an even greater extent than they are now. And, you know, several of them, many of them were actually martyred for the faith. Right, exactly. So it is a good reminder. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad that Matthew Schmitz has brought that to the reader's attention. If you want to check it out, it's called, um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's called God's Garbage People. God's Garbage People. If you yeah. have the physical edition, it's in the very back. It's uh, Matthew Schmitz writes the back page every month. Uh, but you can find it online if you just search God's Garbage People first things. Yeah. Well, Kevin, so, should we yeah, just, go ahead with our topic? Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's this did, did you have something else first? Extended, I, I don't want to. Uh, well, I, you know, I was just going to say, let's just become a, an extended advertisement for first things. Uh, what, what else is on Zach Crippen's reading list right now? So um, a couple of things, actually. One, uh, they're both sort of in the same vein, but one um, is written by St. Alphonsus de Liguori. The other is written by, I always, get, always forget the name, Father Jean-Baptiste Saint-Jour. Um, hmm. Saint Claude de la Colombière, um, both Jesuits, but don't hold that against them, Kevin. Um, the uh, <laughs> the Saint Alphonsus book is called Uniformity with God's Will, and this is they're both very short reads. The Uniformity with God's Will book is about fifty pages long, and it is all about how the great um, the great calling of every Christian is to be conformed with God's will, and if you are if your will is for, fully conformed to God's. You will never want for anything because you will always want what God wants. And so I was just reading this um, a couple of nights ago. There were a couple examples. Let me see if I can pull them up. There are a couple of examples of people who, whose lives were really um, not going well by our earthly standards, right? And mm-hmm. so they would encounter these things that we would say, wow, that must be horrible. And they would say, no, actually, I want this for myself because God wants it for me. And the, the modern mind might look at that and say, wow, that sounds really masochistic and unhealthy. <laughs> the, uh, the Christian mind says, no, God loves us in a remarkable right. <laughs> way that we cannot comprehend. And he does not allow us to encounter what will not sanctify us. But we have to, um, we have to trust him in that and cling ever more closely to him. And so um, it's a really good reminder of that. And it's something that I struggle with a lot, which is you know, precisely why my spiritual director recommended that read for me. And the other oh, one is... The other one is trustful surrender to divine providence, the secret of peace and happiness. So you can, you can guess it's very similar themes. This one's about 100, 130 pages or so, but um, both remarkable reads that I highly recommend. Excellent. So How about you? Sound like great reminders that there is no victory without the cross, right? Indeed. Oh, for me. Um, so I've actually, from uh, kind of my more, call it secular reading, uh, I've been reading a book called uh, The Day of Battle by 
uh, Rick at Rick Atkinson. Uh, it's a World War II history, so um, it's kind of going to my secular life as a national security analyst. Uh, so I'm, I'm reading that, you know, just personal interest uh, on the spiritual end of things. Um, actually, kind of in between books right now, I just finished. Uh, Benedict the Sixteenth series uh, on Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, so part. good, so yeah, good, ab- absolutely incredible. Highly recommend. Uh, you know, there's a great section. I can't even remember now because at least the first two volumes kind of blurred together uh, in terms of because they're really two parts of one overarching book. But he has, I think it's in the first. It might be in the second volume. This uh, section where he completely dissects. Uh, the Our Father, the Lord's Second prayer. volume, yeah. Second volume, okay, great. And he goes proposition by proposition. And ever since reading that, anytime I pray the Our Father or we pray it in church, I cannot help but think of much more deliberately about the words, about the structure of it and the full meaning. And that's, I think, one of the great things about uh, reading Pope Benedict's writing is he illuminates these kind of everyday aspects of Catholicism that just play out in your daily life. Um, so I just finished that, and now I'm kind of, I'm in between, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm trying to make a decision. I've got a couple of things uh, stacked up next to me right now, and I'm trying to decide which one's next. Um, Father Thomas Joseph White, OP, uh, his book, The Light of Christ, oh, is there. Oh, so good. Yeah, so. Um, Read it. Thinking about that one, uh, I've also got um, Robert Cardinal Sarah's uh, newest book, uh, the day is now far spent, so I got to kind of decide between one of those two which one's next. But oh my goodness, I don't, way, know, I don't know how you I choose. I don't think I'm gonna be going wrong. So. No, yeah, I mean, I think in that situation, I would just dual wield, just both simultaneously. Oh, yeah, I'm a pretty infamous option. dual wielder, though. I, I I frequently am reading multiple books at a time. So I'm the same way. I try typically not to blur the lines between genre, um, genre, right? Yeah. And unless you know, if one genre is completely out. I usually try to wield kind of, you know, one history or philosophy, one spiritual slash theology, and then something kind of uh, fiction or literature so that I kind of, I usually have between three or four going at any point in time, but I find that more than that, I start to lose focus. And yeah, that's, uh, that seems reasonable. Yeah. I, I've, I've found the same. It hasn't really stopped me, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I have two things to mention real quick, Kevin, and then we'll get to our topic for today. The first, related to what you were just suggesting about Benedict, as you mentioned Benedict's trilogy, it occurred to me that a fantastic Advent practice for some of our listeners, if they are so inclined, would be to pick up his very short first volume in that trilogy, which is Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives. Mm-hmm. And that is, I don't remember exactly, I don't know, 140 pages, Kevin. I mean, it's pretty short, right? right? It's, a, it's a small little read, very manageable, especially if you divide it up in you know five or 10 page increments over the course of mm-hmm. Advent. But it is one of the most remarkable, actually, it's, it's the most remarkable exposition of our Lord's early life. And mm-hmm. I learned so much in that book and just gained such an appreciation for the early chapters of the gospel. So I highly recommend that as an Advent practice. Um, the second thing I was going to mention is next episode, uh, I'm going to be sitting down with um, Father Jim Barron, um, my pastor. And hopefully, Kevin, if he can make it work with his work schedule, but we're going to be talking about Familiaris Consortio, the apostolic exhortation of St. Pope John Paul II. So, or is it, hold on, I always mess, mess this up, Kevin. Pope St. John, John Paul II. St. John Paul II. Thank yes. you. Pope St. John Paul II. Um, it is his apostolic exhortation on the family. And mm. we think it's very appropriate. Uh, well, it's a, it's a very good encyclical or exhortation, obviously, but we think it's very appropriate, you know, coming coming out of Thanksgiving weekend when maybe you uh, had a lot of family <laughs> to maybe too much family and then going into Advent where you're probably going to have a lot more family as well. So just to to remember what um, what our church teaches about the importance of the family and the role of the family in the modern world. So very important. If you want to um, follow along even better with that discussion, uh, go ahead and look it up. Familiaris Consortio. And uh, we'll talk about that on the next podcast. Sounds great. Advent, the season of the Holy Family. Great time to uh, meditate on that and uh, do good penance too. It is a, I think sometimes it's lost and it certainly was lost on me for many years that this is one of the two great penitential seasons of the church and Advent leads up to the great celebration of Christmas, just as Lent leads up to the great celebration of Easter. And there are times of preparation and preparation always means uh, penance for us down here and uh, the church, and the church militant. militant exactly <laughs> all right that is very true let's go ahead and talk about our first or our topic today kevin 
And that is the problem of evil. Just just a little light conversation. Right. <laughs> just a small problem. Not I do a big problem at all. Uh, no. I do want to say that this is not an academic treatment of the subject. What we what we intend to do here in the next 20, 25 minutes or so is to offer some ways to approach this problem from a Catholic perspective and some answers that the church has provided to this problem. But what we don't want to do is to suggest that this is an easy problem, to suggest that this problem has a ready answer, to suggest that if you are wrestling with this problem, it's an unreasonable thing to wrestle with. In fact, uh, quite the opposite, I think. If you're not wrestling with this problem uh, every day, then then I think you're not thinking seriously enough about about existence and the world, because this is a serious problem, uh, and it demands serious answers, and it demands serious thoughts. So our intent for today is to dive into this a little bit and talk about what it means. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning that this is one of two 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 uh, arguments against the existence of God that the the great Saint Thomas raises in his Summa, and just the fact that he you know, he offers these sort of five proofs for the existence of God uh, and only offers two uh, two serious arguments against the existence of God, and this is one of them. So he also affords it a pretty important place in the sort of list of objections that, that we need to be ready to respond to as Catholics. Yeah, I think it's saying quite a bit that uh, a man and a scholar like St. Thomas, who always tried to present the most complete and holistic argument against the arguments that he was making, could really only find what it seems like he only found two very serious uh, challenges to the existence of God. And the fact that this is one of them means that the two of us are not going to get to the answer today. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But we, uh, and I think, I think we can talk about what the church says in general terms. uh, But that's, you know, we're not, like I said, we're not going to, we're not going to resolve all of your questions on the problem of evil in the course of 20 minutes here. Um, If we were, we were, we would, we would be uh, employed elsewhere probably. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, Zach, what is the problem of evil? So, I th- so the, the, there's a logical formulation, and then there's sort of, um, I guess, an experiential formulation. I'll start with the experiential formulation, and that's basically that evil exists, and we experience it every day. Um, and there are different types of evil, right? There's, uh, you know, think of maybe the most obvious example in recent human history, the Holocaust, right? Millions mm-hmm. of Jews killed. Uh, uh, hundreds of thousands more who supported and harbored them killed by an evil Nazi regime. And uh, that is an example of the will of humanity going awry and destroying other parts of humanity, other humans. There's also what we might call natural evil, and that would be things like people dying from earthquakes, tsunamis, natural disasters. Uh, We could even lump, you know, people dying from the effects of climate change into this discussion. Or more simply, maybe more readily obvious to people uh, like us in in a country that doesn't face many deaths from natural disasters on an annual basis, um, deadly disease, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe a really obvious example. I'm sure many of our listeners uh, know people who have died from cancer. I know I certainly do. And that is the problem of evil in a nutshell, right? These people, through no fault of their own, uh, develop cancer. And it's, it's a seemingly random disease that has, in some cases, you know, a genetic component to it, et cetera. But this is not something that is easily predictable. It's uh, often something that's not easily treated, and it, and it takes lives. So that is the problem of evil. I think the way that I best capture the problem of evil to people is in talking about a case of pediatric cancer, where, where a yeah. two- or three-year-old develops some sort of fatal brain tumor that causes them immense pain and suffering on their way to, to death. And that's a horrible, horrible thing that is very difficult to, to understand on any Absolutely. level. Um, and it, it kind of seems, you know, when I think about this, the problem of evil, the simplest experiential, as you put it, I think way to, to frame it is the question, how could God let something like this happen? Yes. And when we find ourselves asking that question, if we find ourselves asking that question, we are encountering the problem of evil. Exactly. And that is the, that's the essence of the problem of evil right there. If we were to put that into a more philosophical, logical formulation, 
It would look something like what a man named J.L. Mackey came up with. He was an Australian atheist philosopher in the first part of the 20th century. And he framed the, the question more or less in this way. And this is sort of the, the dilemma. He said that, you know, the, the God of Christianity is omnipotent, right? That is all powerful. The God of Christianity is claimed to be all good, benevolent. And those two claims coexist alongside the fact, the reality in the world that some evil exists. And he said that the problem of evil, logically speaking, is that all three of those things cannot simultaneously be true. And so what he meant by that is that, you know, we have a number of solutions to the problem of evil, generally speaking, in his logical formulations. So remember these three things, God is omnipotent, God is all good, and some evil exists. They can't all be true, right? Says, says J.L. Mackey. So possible solution number one that J.L. Mackey, the atheist, came down on is quite simply atheism, right? Atheism Mm -hmm. says, well, there is no God, and therefore God is neither omnipotent nor all good because God simply doesn't exist. And so we can identify and recognize this fact that some evil exists, but we don't have this dilemma at all because for us, all suffering, all evil is gratuitous. Gratuitous meaning that it's uh, it's in surplus, it doesn't serve a purpose, etc., right? So all evil is gratuitous for the atheist, and there is no problem of evil. I mean, yes, it's bad, it's inconvenient, it's, it's unfortunate that it exists, but there doesn't need to be a, a way to square it with the existence of God because there simply isn't God. So that's that's right. one solution, and that's the okay. one, obviously, that, that Mackey fell down on. There's, there are a number of other solutions, one of them uh, being pantheism. Now, pantheism would claim that there are, that there are um, or that, that God is in everything, right? And so pantheism endorses this idea that God is not fully good because God can be in an instrument of good, God can be in an instrument of evil, and God is, in fact, in both of those instruments of good and of evil. Mm-hmm. And so God might be all-powerful, and God, the, the pantheist would add, God is not only omnipotent, but also omnipresent because God is in everything. God is everything. Uh, but because God is everything or God is in, is in everything, um, then he's not wholly good. And so that's why some evil exists because God is um, a, a sort of mixture of good and evil. So that's mani- another kind of the manifestation of the universe, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so that's another possible solution. There's another possible solution that then uh, attacks the idea of God being omnipotent. So, so think of like ancient polytheism, right? The Greeks who had Zeus as the king god, um, and you know Hermes, and uh, I'm being exposed to my my lack of Greek myths. <laughs> give me Athena. Uh, give me some other gods. Hera. Here. Hera. Um, who else? Give me some more here. <laughs> we we need more. The, the big canon of Greek gods. The canon of Greek gods, what uh, Zeus, Neptune. I mean, you're calling you're calling me out here. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, what All else right. would be Hades? There we go. Okay, so Hera, we got so you you you, you just listed Apollo. five or six, right? Apollo. Okay, Mercury. Mer- oh, there we go. I thought Mercury was Roman. No. Uh, yeah, he's uh, Hermes. In, oh, okay, gotcha. In the Greek canon, they're um, all the same. All right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all, so, so this is exactly the point, though, right? They're all the same, and this is ancient polytheism, right? So, ancient polytheism um, develops these ideas of gods, and these gods, by the way, are distinct from the Christian god as the first mover. These gods are um, more, more sort of semi-deific as compared to the god of Christianity because they're limited in their power, and so perhaps collectively these gods have something like total power, but none of them have total power unitively. And so because that's the case, the gods are not all powerful. Mm-hmm. So uh, the polytheist says, okay, we're going to deny proposition one. God is not all powerful. Um, and because they deny that, because they deny the unitive property of God, then they also really deny that God is wholly good because God is then divided. Um, and so, th- so that's sort of their solution to, to the problem of evil. Um, another possible solution, I think this is the final list of possible solutions that deny one of the premises, would be idealism. So think of some forms of Hinduism, New Age spirituality, Christian science, um, these ideas that, that say, yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is holy. Well, actually, yes, God is all-powerful, but it sort of stops there because they really deny such a thing as real evil and deny such a thing as real goodness. Um, there is only what is. And so the, the way of attacking the problem of evil there is to say that, you know, what, what looks like evil to us, what we experience as suffering, um, either isn't or isn't real. 
Um, and that would be another possible solution by denying premise three, that some evil exists. Um, so, you know, either these things are fictions of our imagination or um, they're not actually evil because we can't see their entire scope. Seems very subjectivist. Exactly. Yeah. Completely subjectivist. So those are the four possible solutions that arrive at a solution by denying one of Mackey's three premises, that God is all powerful, that God is all good, and that some evil exists. And then we arrive at the Christian view. And this is to say that all of those things, God is all powerful, God is all good, and some evil exists, are simultaneously true. And the big question is, how is this possible? J.L. Mackey certainly didn't think that it was. So I think now we should maybe examine some of the some of the assumptions in the language of what we talk about when we say evil exists, God is all good, God is all powerful. Sounds good. So let's see, why don't we start with the assumption that some evil exists? Yeah, I think this one is, well, so the Catholic says, yes, absolutely. Some evil does exist. Evil is an objective fact of the world. We, we are not idealists here. We are not subjectivists. Evil is an objective fact of the world. It is real. Um, and if you crack open your catechism, you'll see some sections in there. I'm looking at 324 and 309 uh, that, that talk very specifically about this, right? So let me read 324, for example. The fact that God permits physical and even moral evil is a mystery that God illuminates by his son, Jesus Christ, who died and rose to vanquish evil. Okay, so I think right there are two things to recognize. One, as we said, evil is an objective fact and it's real. But two, this is not an easy answer. And so even the catechism here says this is a mystery, right? And as we've talked about before in the context of the mystery of the sacrament of the Eucharist, a mystery in this sense doesn't mean that the entire meaning or answer is obfuscated, but rather that it can't be entirely accessed by human reason. Right, so, so take, for example, the Eucharist. We can talk about the Eucharist and transubstantiation. The exact mechanism of how that happens is beyond our grasp. And so in the same way, we can talk about evil and the fact that it is real and the fact that Jesus died and rose to vanquish it, but, but the existence of evil and exactly why it exists and exactly how it can be redeemed in every situation is a mystery to us because it can't be entirely known to us. And that's because right. we're, not, we're not omniscient like God is. And then I think the other thing to point out is the Catechism says in section 309, there is not a single aspect of the Christian message that is not in part an answer to the question of evil. Right. And I think, um, you know, those are some, some good lines from the Catechism and uh, once you're once you close your catechism, you can crack open the Summa, which is un, you know undoubtedly very nearby as well. The, uh, uh, the the main source document, other than the Bible, for the catechism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe maybe not quite. <laughs> well, it's up there. It's definitely up there. Definitely. You up know, there. I think one of the great things about the Summa is you're pretty hard pressed if you have any question, uh, any theological question. You're be hard pressed to open the Summa and not find at least an attempt at an answer in there and exactly. usually a pretty solid one um, but i bring up the, thu- the summa because it provides us with uh, a pretty useful definition of evil i think so when we talk about if some evil exists it's worthwhile to have a definition and the definition that saint thomas provides us is the absence of the good which is natural and due to a thing so what that means essentially is that evil is a corruption if you have something that is uh, has a good that is due to it, so it, typically we'd frame this as uh, the end of something is the good towards which it is aiming. Uh, and if you have the absence of that, then that is evil. So it's not to say that even an evil act isn't, uh, let's say, directed towards some good, because every act, this is a very Aristotelian notion, and even Platonic notion, is that every act is ordered towards some good the question is is it ordered towards the good so even when you have a person choosing to do something that is say contra uh, the ultimate good which is uh, ordered towards the will of god they're still reaching towards some good whether it be you know a physical pleasure or um, even a mental pleasure uh, but ultimately not aimed towards the 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 highest good. The highest good, which is the natural 
um, end of, of whatever thing is aiming towards that good. So with this, with this idea of, the, of evil being the absence of the good, I think often in terms of, say, an amputee or perhaps someone who's born without, without a, a limb, right? So what Thomas is not saying, if I can uh, you know, be so free as to interpret Thomas here, what Thomas is not saying is that you know, that person is evil because they lack a limb or right. uh, that, you know, that, that limb is somehow, um, that, that missing limb somehow uh, conditions that person to do evil or to be evil. But rather what he's saying is that limb is supposed to be there. And the fact that that limb is not there is an evil of itself. It's a, it's a physical, material evil. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the interesting thing here is that if you talk to an amputee or someone who was born without a limb, they might push back on that, uh, I'm guessing, uh, and say, that's, you know, maybe that's offensive, I disagree with that, et cetera, because because of this, I am what I am, and I've been able to do amazing things, and I have this perspective, et cetera. But that's, that almost sort of, and I don't want to get too, too far ahead of our skis here, but that almost sort of captures the essence of the Christian message about evil and about Christ, Christ conquering evil, right? Because the evil that is absence or the, the absence of the good that is natural and due to a thing that Thomas talks about, that sort of evil is not outside of the redemption of God. And so I think of the passage in Genesis when Joseph tells his brothers that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, the ruler of this age, and by that I mean the person of Satan, intends evil for evil's sake. Uh, and yet, God can use that evil for good things. So someone who is born without the right use of a limb uh, can, through the, through the absence of that limb, actually, and because of the absence of that limb, um, be, be redeemed. And I don't mean that they're going to be eternally saved because of their, their absence of a limb, but I mean the actual absence of the limb can be redeemed and turn around and be a good thing for that person. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. So that gives us a, you know, a solid definition and a kind of a good example there. And so as we kind of wrap up this um, first assumption or first preposition about some evil existing, um, we have our definition. So what is ultimately, if you were to sum it up, the Christian Catholic response to how some evil can exist in the world without, um, without this completely ruining our ability to advance through the other assumptions. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to, um, well, yeah, let me back up a little bit. Maybe before we answer that question, we can go into a couple of other definitions that I think are important because let's do it because you definitions. I know JL Mackey talked about a God who's omnipotent and a God who's all good. Right. And I think when we talk about omnipotence, what we're talking about there is the source of all actualizing and potential power. And, one of these days, sometime soon, Kevin, I'd love to sit down with you and we can go through Aristotle, crack open that. I'm going to say that's a very uh, Aristotelian statement you just made there. Exactly. Talking about actuality and potentiality. I know. I like it. We can crack open that book that your microphone's sitting on top of, the, the, the complete works. <laughs> and um, actually use it, yeah. Exactly, and explore what he says about this because this is Aristotle's argument from change, essentially, right? That there is a first mover. And, uh, you know, the argument is, is not that all things are created but everything that is everything that is going from potential to actual uh has an actualizing power right and so when we talk about an omnipotent god what we mean is a god who is the source of all potential in the universe right in the cosmos what we do not mean is that this god has the power of logical contradiction so you've probably heard the question of can god if God can do anything, can God make a rock so big that he can't even lift it? <laughs> the answer is, uh, that's absurd, right? <laughs> because right. It's, it's a logical impossibility. So similarly, can God make a square circle? No, of course. He can turn a square into a circle, for sure. But can he make a square that is simultaneously also a circle? Um, again, the answer is, that's absurd, right? And so it is important to remember that even though God is omnipotent and the source of all actualizing and potential power, he does not have the power of logical contradiction because logical contradiction is by definition an absurdity. Okay, and then we... Right. What's that? No, right. And, uh, you know, maybe a simpler formulation than the source of all actualizing potential power is he's the source of all being, right? And yeah. that is being, being is actuality and potentiality is you know, what we think of as change or the potential for change. And ultimately, 
God as the source of all being. Uh, we see this in the biblical formulation when, um, when Moses is kind of face-to-face with God on, on the mountain in the burning bush where God says, I am, right? I am that I am. And it's kind of the famous formulation of God as pure being, as the source of all being. Yes. Uh, interesting side note here. I'm teaching a course uh, tomorrow, Kevin, on uh, whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. And um, one of the things that's interesting, one of the things that's come up in my research is whether or not Jesus really claimed divinity, right? There's a, there's a claim out there that in the Gospels, Jesus never actually really says, I'm God. Uh, it comes through in John, but John's after the fact, and John's sort of a, a mystic, and John sort of imposed his, his view after the fact. Well, interestingly, when Jesus comes to the disciples walking on the water, they're scared right? They see him and they're scared of him and he intends to pass by them. And the, the wording there is the same as when a God passes by, uh, and, um, Elijah has his face in the rock and can't look right. Mm-hmm. And then, um, what Jesus says when, when he responds to them is uh, often rendered in the contemporary translations as it is I, which sounds to us like, Hey guys, it's just me. But really, <laughs> but really the Greek there, um, is the, uh, is basically the Hebrew translation into Greek of um, I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I thought that was very interesting. Uh, anyway, we digress a little bit. So thank you we for digress. that. I think the, uh, when we talk about Aristotle's argument from change, we should talk about actual and potential, but, um, for now, the source of all being, I think is good. So that's what we mean when we, we talk about God, but we do not talk about, we do not imply the power of logical contradiction. But the second thing is goodness, right? And so what do we mean by goodness? Um, by this, we mean that God is pure love, right? And that's that that goes even farther than most people's understanding of Christianity. We say that God is love. We've talked about um, Deus Caritas Est, the encyclical from Benedict the Sixteenth. Um, so we say that, but we also understand that goodness is distinct from kindness. Um, kindness being sort of giving people what makes them feel the best, right? Right. So think, for example, of a parent who takes their kid trick or treating, like like I did a few weeks ago. Uh, take your kid trick-or-treating and you come back with a huge basket or bag full of candy, right? So, you know, kindness, uh, we might call this sort of being a pushover, right? You just let your child go and go and go on that candy until your child has a big stomach ache. Um, that would be sort of pure kindness at work. But when we talk about God, what we, what we really talk about is pure goodness. And pure goodness is willing the best for your child in that instance, right? So, um, hey, Bobby, let's have one lollipop and tomorrow we can have another, right? And so, so that has a couple benefits. One, you don't get a stomachache now or a, a major sugar crash. Uh, but two, I also, you know, I sort of spread out, spread this out for you, right? And you can enjoy it for longer and, and maximize, uh, maximize the goodness of the lollipops, right? Um, so that's what we mean by, by goodness. So with, with those terms in mind, sort of uh, uh, those three, omnipotence, goodness, and evil, I think we can then sort of get on to talking about terms. But one other thing I think we should talk about, Kevin, is, is the distinction between spiritual evil and physical evil. Spiritual yes. evil, um, also sometimes referred to as moral evil. So spiritual and moral evil are the same things for our purposes here. Physical evil is, is different. Um, and spiritual and moral evil... Think of that just as the evil that we do or the evil for which we are directly responsible. Okay, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, hitting someone, right? Like, I hit my sibling. That would be an example of spiritual or moral evil. Um, my sibling, who gets hit by me, would be experiencing evil, something that they are not responsible for, you know, assuming they didn't provoke me, et cetera, right? So um, that would be an example of physical evil. So to, to wrap this up in a different way, spiritual evil is the evil that we will, the evil that we choose to do, Physical mm-hmm. evil is the evil that is against our will, right? Um, you know, natural evil, so we're suffering from brain cancer, for example, or uh, suffering from the evil choices of others, like victims of the Holocaust. Um, that would be that would be physical evil. Um, on the side of the perpetrators, right, Hitler and all of his cronies who are killing Jews, that would be spiritual evil. Um, so that's what we talk about when we're when we're sort of trying to trying to categorize different types of evil, because those two types of evil have different questions that accompany them right i think that certainly i think that it's i don't use the word easy none of this is easy no it is um I th- for me at least i want to talk for myself it is under more understandable for me um why the holocaust happened that is there's an evil man who's a lunatic and uh and is you know and is a charismatic leader who's able to marshal the resources of a nation uh, against the whole race of people um that is understandable to me 
no less abhorrent, but still understandable on that level. And then there's the kind that's that's less understandable, right? Like the the two year old or three year old who gets brain cancer. Um, the one is spiritual evil because there's someone's choices involved, and the other is physical evil because there's no choice involved. Right, and I think to your point, I think the reason why uh, the first example is more relatable, more understandable, is because we can ascribe a a an actor to it right we can we can say there is a person out there in this case adolf hitler who is has a will and is an, enacting his will uh, as we kind of talked about earlier is looking towards some good uh, in this case it's you know power which can be a good it is self gratification uh and it was in some sense you know um the the at least physical good of a subsect of his people uh so you can look at that and say well you know it's abhorrent and on the grand scheme unexplainable but there are little portions of that you can tease out and ultimately it's easier uh, for us to understand because we have something to blame right at the end of the day we can look and point a figure and say this evil is a direct result of this person and his choices and his actions whereas you know the child who is suffering not because of any person imposing suffering on the child uh, is like you said we don't really have a good place to point a finger uh, or a good way to to explain that right exactly and so um now that we've sort of defined our terms i think we should go on and talk about the catholic perspectives on these the the problem of evil and more specifically spiritual and then natural evil but um, i also think as we do that it's helpful to take a step back and look at the the grand meta narrative the big story of salvation history you know, what is, what, what do we in the Catholic church say that God is doing with his people here? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's take it all the way back, right. To creation. God creates the world, right. The God, the source of all being creates this world and he creates it. Holy good. So God's not the, not God's not the author of evil, right. Um, God creates man and God creates man to be in friendship with God because God creates man in his image. So we're there. We're in the Garden of Eden, right? We are created to be in friendship with God. Life is perfect, literally uh, and metaphorically, and it's all good. And then, um, I love Frank Sheed's words here, man wrecked the scheme, right? So things <laughs> are going well. Uh, we're, we're walking with God in the cool of the day, and then we disobey God. And it's not as simple as just um, God says, don't eat, don't eat from the fruit of that tree, uh, and then we do, right? Um, that could be allegorical, could be literal. That's really besides the point. The fundamental sin here is the sin of pride and wanting to appropriate what belongs to God alone. So the power of creation, the power to know good from evil, etc., that is what humanity aspires to, and that is why humanity commits the first sin. And the important thing here to note for the problem of evil is twofold. One, that that first sin had in its source human will, right? Mm -hmm. Adam and Eve as our forebears, and again, putting aside the question of literal or, or um, uh, allegorical, uh, it, is a, it is a real true event in the sense that it tells us the salvation story, right? Adam and Eve willed to sin against God, and that will was all about their pride and wanting to take what was not theirs from God alone. Um, the second thing to note is that the effects of that sin, right, the curse, the fall, um, wrecked all of creation, right? That's why Sheed says man wrecked the scheme because creation was so perfect and God had, had made it that way. And then Adam and Eve sinned and messed everything up. And so I say that's important for the problem of evil because natural evil is a huge problem, right? Why do people get cancer? Why do earthquakes happen, right? Why do people die from natural disasters and other calamities? Well, all of creation is thrown into disorder from this sin itself okay so um even the person you know the two or three year old who develops cancer through no fault of their own right they experience an evil that they do not will for themselves and then in some cases they actively will against right why am i suffering i don't want to be suffering and yet they continue to suffer um well the same the same sin into which that person that child is born when they inherit original sin that same sin 
not theirs personally, but the, their inherited original sin, has you know the the first the very original sin of Adam and Eve at its source, and it's that sin that has introduced this disorder into the world, and it's that sin that cries out for redemption. So this is why in Romans chapter eight, for example, Saint Paul talks about how the whole creation has been groaning together. Um, you know, in labor pains for Christ because he is the redeemer. He's the one who comes to redeem us all, to set it all back in order. So with that, with that sort of meta-narrative summary, now we can talk about what exactly the Catholic says about spiritual and physical evil. The first thing, I already mentioned this, the nature of spiritual evil is sin, right? So what is spiritual evil? Well, fundamentally, it's sin. Like you were saying, Kevin, right? everything we do aims at some good, even if it's a distorted view of that good, etc. But it doesn't aim at the highest good. Sin is basically anything that doesn't aim at the highest good, right? Um, and that separates us from God by definition, because if we're not aiming to get closer to him, then we're pulling ourselves farther away from him. And the spiritual evil um, in that sense is manifest in our sin, which is just the enacted impulse of our will away from God. So this is, I think, again, relatively understandable, right? The origin of spiritual evil is human free will. Why do we do bad things? Well, we have a human free will that God has given us that allows us to do bad things. And then every sin arises from an act of the will, right? We have our own concupiscence, which is just our sort of inclination to do bad things, right? To go against God. Now we can choose to act on that or we can choose to not act on that, but we can still choose. And when we act on that, it's because we've made a conscious choice to act on that will. Right. And that's, and I think that's what a sin is. The fact that there is a free will, I think, you know, there's that question comes up is, people frequently ask, well, if all this evil is the result of free will, then why didn't God just create human beings without free will? Right. And the fact that he, that he did so, and the fact that, you know, as the Bible says, that the creation was good, there's, the underlying implication of that is in order for creation to be perfect, humanity had to have free will. Right. Um, which I think, you know, it's interesting and, and maybe not something that we're going to we'll be able to solve today. But when God, through that act of creation, created man with free will, uh, it was, you know, his, his conscious choice. And, um, you know, I think St. Thomas kind of grapples with this question too. And he places God, you know, outside of time. So God is sort of able to gaze across the entire um, presentation of history at the moment of creation and is able to look upon that and knows that his choice of of the creation that he chooses to create he can look at uh, the entire outcome of that um, and i think that is kind of one way that he he being saint thomas kind of grapples with this is the idea that god knows that his act of creation and his act of creating man with free will is going to result in the entire course of history, but through, uh, you know, the events of history that we see, the incarnation of his son, his sacrifice on the cross, the redemption of humanity through his sacrifice, that that is God's way of both creating a creation um, that is initially perfect and is restored into its perfection uh, when history runs its full course. But there, I think there's a lot there that we'd have to unpack that we probably just don't have time to get to tonight. <laughs> there is, and I agree we don't have time to fully flesh it out, but you're touching on something very profound here that is important for this conversation, Kevin. And that's not just that God created us at the beginning with free will and chose to do so out of his goodness, which is certainly true, but also this sort of, this not sort of, this does answer the question of the problem of evil, right? When J.L. Mackey says, why does a good God who is a powerful, all-powerful God allow evil the answer at least for spiritual evil is that god allows spiritual evil so that he can preserve human free will because there are two options right god can either make us all puppets and take away our free will so that we cannot possibly go away from him we cannot possibly act on our concupiscence or god can preserve our human free will and therefore leave the door open for us to act on our will even when our will steers us away from him and the reason why he does that is that with our will intact, with our free will intact, we can then choose to love him. And so we can more perfectly love him. And so the communion with him can be more full and more real. And that's the answer to the problem of spiritual evil. Right. Because ultimately, it seems it boils down to you can't love without choice. 
because love is a choice and uh, to choose the good is what humanity is aiming towards. And without a free will, you wouldn't be aiming or choosing. You would merely be acting upon you know, instinct as the animals do. Exactly. Yep. So that answers, well, I mean, again, so answers. I've answered the problem of evil. <laughs> I heard you say it. You, bo- you both, in, in one <laughs> breath, you said I made a profound point and that I answered the problem of evil. So, so there we go. We can just wrap so this up now. We can just move on. <laughs> okay. So for our purposes today, that provides a quick overview of the Catholic perspective. There is a lot to say more, but I do want to talk about this, this uh, question of physical evil because. I think it's a little bit, I mean, it is a little bit different from spiritual evil, right? To me, again, it's more understandable. God allows spiritual evil only because that's the way he preserves free will. Okay, got mm-hmm. it. Well, now there's this question though, right? Why does physical evil exist? And again, I go back to the sort of what I think of as like the most painful, heart-rending example of physical evil, a two or a three-year-old getting brain cancer and suffering through an agonizing death. That is horrible on so many levels for everyone involved. And it's very hard for us to fathom in our modern minds any possible reason God would have for, for permitting anything like that. But I think to, to talk a little bit about the Catholic perspective here, again, the nature of our physical evil is suffering, right? So when we experience physical evil, it causes suffering. And it can cause suffering in varying degrees, but all the way up to and including an agonizing death, right? Now, we talked about this a little bit, but the origin of physical evil is spiritual evil. In other words, we suffer because we sin. And when I say we, I don't mean me personally. So I'm not saying that the two or three year old who gets cancer has consciously sinned because that's, you know, they're not at the age of reason that that doesn't even make sense. Right. But remember how I talked about the inherited sin, right? We suffer as a human race because we sin as a human race, right? Because we sinned at the beginning, because we wrecked the scheme, because we introduced this disorder, this chaos, um, this badness into the into God's good creation. That has introduced all, all kinds of suffering. And so this is the throwing of creation all out of joint. Now, I think some examples are more readily perceptible, right? Like, um, you know, someone who develops lung cancer for, you know, f- from living in, uh, in a crowded smoggy city uh you know might be experiencing that cancer because of people who have been greedy and out of control and ignored environmental regulations or just a general regard for the environment etc but then there are others that are much less clear-cut like that the two or three-year-old with brain tumor and so um so it's not it's not always readily discernible, but in, in general, just general principles, we suffer because we as a human race sinned at the very beginning and and all of creation is is uh, awaiting a total redemption. Um, and I think the other thing here is that God allows physical evil as spiritual discipline um, and as training for our own ultimate perfection and eternal joy. So in that way, suffering, uh, the evil, the, the suffering that is produced by evil can be redemptive for us. Now, it's not always redemptive, right? I mean, I think it was Christopher Hitchens who, when he was diagnosed with cancer, uh, said that if we ever heard of a deathbed confession, it was because his brain had gone before his his body. Right. Um, and so, so there are some instances, certainly, in which physical evil and the suffering that it produces causes a hardening of heart and makes people turn away towards God. But there are also many other examples, and the stories of the saints are replete with these, completely replete. Um, is that redundant to say completely replete? It probably is. The, the stories of the <laughs> yes. saints, the stories of saints um, are replete with these examples of saints who have suffered immensely, died young, early, agonizing deaths, and uh, yet that suffering has drawn them closer to Christ because they have uh, exercised their wills towards their creator so that provides a couple of things there um and and again going back to the logical contradiction point i mean the the physical evil that our spiritual evil has introduced into all of creation um that has consequences right and those consequences god can redeem and god has redeemed and he has redeemed those consequences through the sacrifice um death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what is unique about the Catholic faith right. on this, on this question of the problem of evil. Um, so hopefully we've, we've captured that um, in the brief time that we had, Kevin, what else, what else do you have on this? What did I miss? Wow. Um, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. I would just say, I think from kind of a personal perspective, this, the solution to this question or problem of evil um, is difficult because in a sense, it, it requires, you know, we went through some of the, the objections or proposed solutions, but it seems honestly that, at least from my perspective, 
in order to solve this this problem in a satisfactory manner, you have to fall on kind of one of two sides of the fence. One is that there is uh, we we accept all three of those propositions as the Catholic faith does, and you have to accept more or less on faith uh, this redemptive quality, this um, narrative and historical narrative of the incarnation and Christ's sacrifice. I think that is one. Obviously, I find it convincing and satisfactory solution to the problem. And the only other, I think, that solution that kind of approaches it is if you want to at least maintain the existence of God, which I think, um, I think the atheist stance has problems that uh, we won't. I'm not going to get into right now. I think if you're going to accept that there is a God, um, that this is omnipotent and an all good God and that there can still be evil in the world. You either have to take the Catholic stance or I think another one that kind of approaches satisfaction is an Aristotelian stance, which is there is a God that is omnipotent and all good. However, he's completely impersonal and disinterested in the world. Um, and existence kind of flows from, from that being, but you know, um, I think we have one of, one of the great parts about our Catholic faith is that we have been given you know, signs and miracles, and we have been given the sacraments to guide us towards the correct answer to that, to that question, which ultimately is um, the Catholic face as, as it has manifested itself through now 2,000 years of history and continues to um, be our guiding light uh, as we, we try to solve this problem in our day-to-day lives. And I think from a perspective of evangelism for our listeners out here, I would just encourage you to engage in these discussions very carefully, very sensitively, very gently with people who are struggling with this problem, because it is not an easy problem. It does not have easy answers. And while of Christianity, I mean, as the catechism says, there's not one aspect of the gospel message that is not in part an answer to the problem of evil. While, while um, our faith uh, answers this question uh, more robustly than any other human invention, or, or I shouldn't say any other, any human invention. Um, our faith is not a human invention, but while our faith answers this, uh, in my mind, more satisfactorily than any human invention, um, it still it still is a mystery, right? And so we don't have all the answers because all of the answers are not uh, totally knowable to human reason. And so um, as you encounter people who are in the church or outside of the church and struggling with this problem of evil, why would God let this happen to me? Why would God let this happen to my my parents, my children, etc.? Um, engage with them on these questions um, together, uh, gently um, pray for them. That's very important, of course, um, because these these answers are or these questions are very difficult to work through. Uh, but it's it's also very good to do that. It's good to ask these questions, and ultimately, I think God wants us to ask these questions because in asking these questions, uh, we can draw closer to God. Um, and so, I encourage you to ask the questions. I encourage you to pray through the questions, um, seek answers. If you'd like to. Uh, have us talk about some of these things more. Uh, we'd like to do that. Obviously, we were uh, limited to just one episode today, so we can't uh, get into this exhaustively, but we'd be happy to have on a, a philosophical expert on the problem of evil who could uh, maybe talk about this in more depth or in, in greater detail than we have. So just let in us much know. more clarity. <laughs> yes, no doubt that as well. Uh, <laughs> you can email Kevin at CredoCatholic.com or Zach, Z-A-C, at CredoCatholic.com. And also a reminder, if you want to listen to the episode next week, which you definitely should, uh, check out Familiaris Consortio, The Apostolic Exhortation. I think it's, uh, I think the subtitle is The Role of the Family in the Modern World or something like that. Um, but it's very good. I'm very excited to sit down with Father Jim and talk about it. And Kevin, hopefully you can join us for that as well. Um, yeah, hopefully. But other than that, uh, Kevin, did you know we got a three-star review on Apple Podcast? We did? Yeah, that's and pretty good, right? Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's not horrible, <laughs> but it was it was kind of funny because you know, one star, I'm like, okay, this person just doesn't like us, or you know, just doesn't like Catholics, whatever the case is. Not surprising, really. Um, the five five stars, I'm very appreciative. Thank you so much to people who give us five stars. Uh, four stars, you know, it's like you guys are doing a good job. It could be doing better. The three stars is just kind of an interesting rating because it's just like, ah, uh, this is meh, you know. 
It's just like <laughs> these guys are like, you know, they're nice guys, not doing a good job, or they're like doing a good job, not nice guys. You know, like I, I get some things out of it, but not others. I don't know. It's just a funny rating. I take it way, way less personally than you do. <laughs> oh no, no, I'm not taking it personally. I'm just, I'm just trying uh, to. Um, okay. I'm, I'm really not. I'm just trying to think through what kind of a person, or not, not what kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, everyone. Uh, no, what, I'm think, trying to think. I think what Zach is trying to say is, please, uh, if you have time, uh, just take a minute rate review us on apple Podcasts. we definitely appreciate it and definitely send us your feedback thank you if i can finish my my thought kevin <laughs> what i was thinking is I'm trying to save you i appreciate that no what i was thinking is what kind of feedback would prompt a three-star review and i wish that they had l- left us written feedback so if you're going to leave us a, a three-star review please be my guest but uh you know let us know what we can be doing better how we can how we can improve um if my voice is annoying you can just say so that's fine i won't be offended All right. With that, that's all we've got for Crudo Catholic today. We will be back next week with a conversation on Familiaris Consortio. And until then, God bless you. It's also Advent 1 right around the corner. So have a blessed first Sunday of Advent. Hopefully you enjoyed your solemnity of Jesus Christ, King of the universe. All right, everybody. Have a great week. God bless you. Peace. Well, I solved the problem of evil tonight, so what did you do?